Good morning. It is good to be back. It was. It felt like a long time away from you guys, and I'm, I'm thrilled to see you all again. I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm, I, I'm privileged to be able to share to you God's word this morning. And if you could, please turn with me now to 1 Peter chapter 3 in your Bibles. We'll be reading through verses 13 and 17, uh, but most of our attention this morning will be on verses 14 and 15. But it's important that we hear them all in context. As you may know, or if those of you who are tuning in for the first time uh, don't know, Pastor Drew has been preaching a series on Each One, Reach One. It's an evangelism series. And evangelism is one of the great undertakings of the Christian. It is uh, our call to proclaim the gospel of Christ, to proclaim the good news. And last week, uh, we think of how Pastor Drew preached out of of the gospel of John and showed us how costly evangelism could be. We, We think of how the man born blind lost everything as he gave his account of his healing. Evangelism is costly, but it's especially costly when we find ourselves in a situation where people are hostile to the gospel of Christ. In such a situation, we often find ourselves being too afraid to speak. Telling people about our faith can be difficult even when there's relatively little at stake But when our livelihood or our reputation is on the line, most of us, self-included, opt out and keep our mouths shut. How do we overcome such fear? And this is precisely what Peter is speaking to in our text this morning. To summarize, he has three points. Peter says we are to have no fear, we are to honor Christ, and we are to defend our hope. My aim is to expound on those three points. What does it mean to have no fear? How do we honor Christ? How are we to defend our hope? And as as we expand on those points, I pray that God himself would encourage you and that he would bear witness to his grace so that you can stand firm in it. So without further ado, let us give ear to the reading of God's holy and inspired word starting in verse 13 of chapter 3 in 1 Peter. Hear God's word. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we have been born anew, not from perishable seed, but from imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Help me now, Father, to proclaim your word. 
Give us hearts and ears that crave your word as spiritual milk so that we can grow in our salvation. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So let us turn our attention to the first question. What does it mean to have no fear? This comes out of verse 14. Read with me. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, all of us are prone to fear, some more than others. Some probably could do with a little more healthy fear. Uh, Fear is a God-given gift. Fear, rightly oriented, is a gift from God. We read in Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Healthy fear, then, it drives us to act wisely, to properly esteem the world around us, to take precautions to prepare. And Peter is writing to people who, at first glance, have excellent reasons to fear. Peter's letter was sent all throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And these Christians in that culture, they were surrounded by idolatry, by debauchery, by drunkenness. And as the Christians would decline to participate in such things, their pagan neighbors would malign, they would slander, and sometimes violently persecute them. Most people would look at that situation and say, yep, you have every right to be afraid. People could come after you, even if you're doing the right thing. They could hurt you, they could take your job, ruin your name, your very life is at stake. Of course you should be afraid of those people. But note, this is precisely the moment when Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Fear is supposed to drive us to act wisely and to prepare. Is Peter saying that those things don't matter? Is Peter saying, nah, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. No, by no means. Remember, fear rightly oriented is a God-given gift. Peter is not saying that we are to have no fear at all. He is saying we are not to fear the world because we are to fear God. It may not be immediately clear in the, the, the text, but if maybe your, your Bible has a little footnote somewhere. Uh, Peter is borrowing the language of Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, where he says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So just like Isaiah, Peter is saying, do not fear man. Honor God as holy. Fear him. Peter is, in a word, telling his readers, no matter how much suffering someone could afflict upon you, they are not the ones you should fear. Fear God. Peter is recapitulating something he would have heard Jesus say. If you remember in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body. Now, as Christians, this does not mean we need to live in fear of punishment. If you have put your faith in Christ, then that punishment for sin has been placed upon Christ at the cross. We remember the words of 1 John, where it says, There is no fear in love, 
But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The question remains, what does it mean to fear God then? Fearing God means seeing everything. It's, it's, a, it's a lens, a way to view the world. It's fearing God is seeing everything, including the trials you go through, and recognizing that it is a part of God's sovereign plan, and then accepting that fact. If that concept is difficult to grasp or foreign to you, think of Job. Job, the man of God who lost nearly everything, who suffered greatly in his body, wanted to put God on trial. He wanted God to give an account of his suffering. But as soon as God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind, we read in verse, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 42, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's a faithful fear of God. Job recognizes that the Lord is sovereign over all things, and he repents of his feelings and actions toward God in his suffering. And that's the kind of attitude Peter wants us to have. Look at verse 17. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. In other words, it is better for us to see God as sovereign, even if it means, and even as we suffer for God while doing good. So then, what does it mean to have no fear? Let's answer that question. It means that we do not fear what people can do to us. It means we do not fear the things that they fear. We do not let our hearts get disturbed at the things that can go on around us. Why? Because the Lord is sovereign and not them. The world cannot lay a finger on us apart from the Father's will. Society cannot issue a single word without the Father's permission. But, as Peter says in verse 14, even if we should suffer for righteousness' sake, know for certain that because God is sovereign, you will be blessed. God's sovereignty is a hard doctrine, but it is a great comfort in times of trouble. Fear the Lord. Let us now consider what it means to honor Christ. We read the second half of verse 14, starting there. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Note now that Peter's command to not fear them is intricate intricately linked to the command to, in our hearts, honor Christ as holy. A heart that honors Christ as holy does not fear man. Honoring Christ and fearing God are intimately linked, right? We think back to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So we see then that the fear of the Lord is not just a mental persuasion, right? It's a total heart commitment. Consider with me Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, when it reads, And now, O Israel, 
God is speaking to his people. He says, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Note also that in that passage, the Lord, he, he doesn't just want a part of you, right? He, he wants and requires and has the whole thing. Jesus Christ is Lord. His lordship, his authority, his power, his presence extends over your entire person. And for those who are born again, that is a thrilling thought. That is a phenomenal feeling to know that this Jesus This Jesus is Christ the Lord. This Jesus is the resurrected conqueror of death. He is the one foreknown before the foundation of the world, the sinless lamb and the shepherd of our souls, and the one to whom belongs dominion forever and ever. This Jesus has you, has claimed you. And the heart that beats with the life that Jesus gives can't help but set Christ apart, set Christ the Lord as holy, as utterly beautiful, as utterly unique, valuable, weighty, worthy, holy. Think of Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah experienced firsthand the glory and holiness of God. And when he did, there was no room left in his heart for the fear of man. In light of God's holiness, Isaiah became keenly aware of his impurity. And as he repented of his sin and as God took away his sin, and then calls for someone to go out, Isaiah is practically leaping out of his seat, saying, here I am, send me. Jesus Christ is the holy Lord of glory, and a heart that is set on that cries, here I am, send me. So do not be content to merely give mental assent to God's sovereignty. Set him apart as holy in your hearts. And affections. You may be saying to yourself, that sounds great. I'm tracking with you. It sounds well and good. I recognize the sovereignty of God, but I still struggle with fear. How do I honor Christ the Lord as holy in my heart? The fear could be of losing a friend or a family member that they will reject you. Maybe you know that God is sovereign And maybe you don't even really fear what will happen to you per se, but you still struggle with fear. I think that's something all of us can relate to. But don't fret. While we likely will not have the same experience Isaiah did while we live here on earth, we can still expect God to work on our hearts and experience His holiness in much the same way that it captures our entire being. First, we are to ask God to give us that holy fear. To see this, we look to the book of James, which, in a similar way to 1 Peter, opens by addressing those who are suffering. He says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Now, James knows that this kind of living is not possible apart from the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. And that's why in verse 5 he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, 
and it will be given him. So that's one way. If you struggle with fear and you want to honor Christ, your Lord, as holy in your hearts, the first way is to ask. And what a great privilege it is that we can go to him and ask, right? There is another way for us to honor Christ as holy in our hearts, and that is by always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you a reason for the hope that is in you. And that brings us to our third point then. So we've seen what it means to have no fear, or more properly speaking, to not fear the world and fear God. And we've seen how we are to honor Christ as holy. But let us now explore so that we may understand how defending our hope is an extension of honoring Christ. In the Greek, if you're looking at your Bible, in your English Bible, it says be ready or being prepared. There's actually no verb in that phrase in the Greek, right? In the King James or in the NASB, they they use italics there, but there's no verb. It doesn't say be prepared. It says literally in the Greek, make holy the Lord Christ in your hearts, ready always to answer for your hope. What does that mean? This is not a sec- it means that this is not a separate command. In other words, you may remember that we saw that fearing God and honoring Christ were intricately linked, but now we see that readiness to defend our Lord and to honor him are indistinguishable. They are the same action. Think with me for a moment. Think of an active duty soldier who would not perform his duties. What kind of a soldier is that? What kind of a servant of the king that does not serve How can you even really consider them a servant at that point? Likewise, what kind of Christian would not defend their hope in Christ? Peter is using his apostolic authority here. He is an apostle. He is sent out by our Lord Jesus, and he uses that authority to give a command. Set Christ apart as holy in your hearts, and that results in a heart that cannot help but speak up for its master. Remember, whom Peter is writing to. He's writing to Christians surrounded by idolatry, debauchery, and drunkenness. And these born-again Christians, they, they sought to be faithful to their Lord, and they declined to participate in such things. And that infuriated their neighbors. We actually have letters written to rulers and everything complaining about these Christians don't do what we do. These pagan neighbors accused Christians of being atheists simply because they did not worship their pagan gods. How that makes sense, I don't know, but that's what they did. They said Christians are atheists, and then they accused Christians of being antisocial for not participating in their drinking parties and orgies. Worse yet, they reasoned that Christians withdrew from these things because they planned to subvert the Roman government. And that is why we see these pagan neighbors maligning, slandering, and sometimes violently persecuting the Christians. And as the unbelieving world watched what is going on, they watched the Christians suffering for what they thought was foolish reasons, the inevitable question arose in their mouths. Why? Why suffer all this? How could the suffering be worth it? Why not just renounce Christ and get this over with? Come back to respectable society. And Christians had to be ready to give an answer. The word Peter uses here in the Greek is, Apologia, from which we get the English word apology. We typically use apology to mean I'm sorry 
or here's my excuse, but that is not what it classically means. It means to give a defense. It's actually the word Paul used in the book of Acts when after being arrested in the temple, he addressed the crowds and said, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Brothers and sisters, we live in a culture today that is only a few steps away from descending into the pit that was Roman society. We are thought of as intolerant for believing there is only one way to heaven. We are thought of as hateful bigots for affirming traditional marriage. And they accuse us of systemically perpetuating an oppressive religion. Now, the church in America does not suffer much violence, and we thank God for that. But we are maligned. We are slandered and increasingly pushed out of the public arena. And if we are to honor Christ, just as the Christians in Peter's day did, we too must be ready to give our defense. For what? For the hope that is in us. And what is this hope that we have? It is a living hope. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is a hope of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. It is a hope in the salvation of our souls, a hope set on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And our hope is not some abstract reality of maybe one day we'll have something better. Our hope is a reality. It is an anchor. It's a person that holds us steady in times of trial. And that person, that hope, is our holy Lord, Jesus Christ. And every God-fearing Christian should consider it a joy to defend that hope. How? It's a reasonable question. Maybe you followed along with me thus far, and the Spirit's working in your heart. You see Christ the Lord as sovereign. You fear Him. You honor Christ as holy. And you desire to be ready to defend your, and hope, you defend your hope. But how? How do we defend our hope? Well, there's a couple points here. Uh, there's a lot that could be said, but I want to make sure we all get home in time for the Super Bowl, so I'll focus on just a couple. First, you must do so with the right attitude. Proper conduct or moral living is a reoccurring theme and concern of Peter's throughout his letter and it appears very prominently in our text this morning. Consider with me verses 13 and 14 again. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The idea being this is a good that is lived out. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, if you suffer as you perform that which is righteous. Consider also how Peter exhorts us to give our answers, and he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You see, good conduct is a fruit of a heart born again, and it flows from the fear of the Lord. And when we are defending the hope that is in us, that fear of God will manifest itself, the proper attitude of gentleness and respect In fact, interestingly enough, in verse 14, the ESV translates the word respect that comes from the Greek word phobos, from which we get phobia, meaning fear. 
We are to give our defense towards unbelievers with gentleness and fear. Not fear of them, but the fear of the Lord. We are to give our defense with gentleness towards the unbeliever and with an attitude of godly fear that works its way out in respectful language and conduct. We see in Psalm 34 how this idea of fear connects with our speech and conduct. It says, starting verse 11, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So clearly we see that our attitude is crucial for our testimony. But your attitude alone is not sufficient. It is not enough. We are secondly, if we are to defend our hope and honor Jesus Christ, we must do so by using faithful words. It should come as no surprise. We are Christians. We are a people of the word. And so it's no surprise that Peter has in mind that we would use words to defend our hope in the word. You may have heard the saying, though, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That saying is cute, and I I actually genuinely appreciate the value it places on our conduct. Again, that's an important part, but the saying is simply backward, right? Words are necessary to communicate our hope. The gospel is first and foremost a proclamation of a message about Jesus, and you can't give the message if you do not use words. So to be honoring our Lord, to defend our hope, we need to use words. And this is precisely when fear kicks in for most of us. At first glance, there may be a lot of good reasons for us to be afraid to give our defense. Even laying aside the the fears of personal risk that some of us may have, how many of us, and I'm, I'm guilty for most of these, have had these thoughts I'm not smart enough. I don't know the Bible well enough. I'm not quick on my feet. I'm not whimsical enough. I'm not good with words. And we use these excuses to to stop us from speaking. But dear saints, if we, as James says, ask for wisdom from God, and if we search for it in his word, all these excuses fall away. Who has made man's mouth Is it not the Lord? Has not our Savior Jesus told us not to be anxious, how we are to speak or what we are to say, for what we are to say will be given to us in that hour? Further, it's important to note that this command to give a defense doesn't say we need to be eloquent. It's not a call to be eloquent. It's a call to be faithful. It's easy for us to look up to these great apologists who have a a Bible verse for everything and a a way to answer every objection. Not only do they know their Bible, they know philosophy and science. These towering figures of apologetics are easy to look up to. But not every Christian, you and I are not called to be them. Peter here is not asking you to be the next R.C. Sproul or Cornelius Van Til. Jesus is calling you through Peter He's calling you to give an answer for the hope that is in you, the hope in you. And this is something every child of God can do. Every child of God can speak up of their love for Christ. 
you can speak up of your reverent fear of him. Speak of how he has been a good Lord and Savior to you. Speak of all he has done for you on the cross and in your life. Speak of how his gospel is for anyone who believes. And speak of how it is better to suffer for him if it is his will than to do evil or deny him. So, brothers and sisters, not only must we be prepared to give such answers in our world today, but for those of us who know and savor Christ It should be our great joy to do so. As we come to know and fear our holy Lord Jesus Christ and think of how he has removed our sins from us, as we think about those things, we should be beaming alongside Isaiah saying, here I am, send me. We should be eager to join up with Paul and ask, demand to give our defense. Not because we're anything special, but because our hope is great. And his name is Jesus. That is being prepared to give your defense. There's much more that remains unsaid, but as we work our way towards the conclusion, towards the end of our time together, uh, I want to conclude with two things. First, I want to give one more reason, just one, one more reason why we should not be afraid. And then I want to give an exhortation. So first, one more reason why you do not need to be afraid to give an answer. You do not need to fear answering if you keep in mind whom you are speaking to. When the unbelieving world asks for a reason for our hope, we are answering those who have rejected the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 2.7. We are answering those who are stumbling in darkness, 1 Peter 2.8-9. We are answering the foolish, 1 Peter 2.15. We are answering those who are futile in their thinking and whose foolish hearts are darkened, Romans 1, 19. So as we deliver our apologies, as we give our defense, remember this, the unbeliever is not the judge and jury over your words. Christ is. So again, do not fear them. Do not be troubled by them. Honor Lord Jesus as holy in your hearts. Because our hope does not stand trial before the unbeliever, but the unbeliever will stand trial before the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they continue to revile him in their hearts, they will be judged. They will be condemned. So now the exhortation. If you have not yet honored Christ as holy in your hearts, hear this. You are without hope, and your suffering will not end in this life. But you need not continue on that way. Peter in verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So the gospel is simply this. Believe by faith that Jesus, who was both God and man, lived the perfect life that you could not died the death that you deserve, but rose again so that you would live with him forever. By faith in this, you will be saved. You will have hope. And you, along with all the other saints who fear God, will be resurrected through Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray.
Father, encourage us to stand fast in your grace. Help us humble ourselves under your mighty hand and to cast all of our anxieties upon you and strengthen us as we wait for you to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. We ask all these so that Christ may be glorified in us, and we ask them in his holy name. Amen.